Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm very glad to have as my guest today, G.S. Johnston. He is the author of three historical novels, Consumption, The Skin of Water, and The Cast of the Hand. And it's the history that he researched for The Cast of the Hand that we'll be talking about today. Great book, by the way, and he's joining us from Sydney, Australia. Thank you for your time. Oh, that's a pleasure to um, to speak to you. I hope my... Um accent is understandable. Yes, of course. No problem there. So I've written my own series of novels based on true life historical crime events, and I have my own personal reasons for doing so. But a lot of listeners expect a history book to be in a nonfiction format. So I always ask fiction authors who come onto my show why they chose to write history in a fictionalized form. Um, I enjoy the... Um kind of structure that history gives me as a novelist because writing a novel is almost about turning things off. When you start researching something, there's so many possibilities you can go in in so many directions that you have to actually start making a decision, a first decision, you know, for example, what's the point of view you're going to tell the story from, which then precludes other things kind of happening within the novel. So what I enjoy about writing historical fiction is that it gives me a almost a ladder of historical events which I can then weave in and out of. So I find um, I find that really easy to work with, I guess. Where did you first come across the story of the Kink family murder case? Uh, initially I was researching another novel which was partially set in France and I needed some information about the new building that had been built, uh, a new uh, courts that had been built in Paris. And I found a book that was centred on the Trotman kink um, case because it was one of the first uh, cases to be trialled within the new building. And gave quite a lot of detail about the case, so I kind of had it on my radar. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to Paris in, it was 2001, and went to an exhibition of uh, death masks at uh, the Musée d'Orsay, which I think Trotman's hand, the cast of his hand may have been there. and. It just started me thinking about these uh, these kind of aspects of the story. So once I'd finished the other novel that I was working on, I started doing some more research into this and then just kind of became intrigued with it. 
it did take me a long while to write. It did take over 10 years to, to finish it, but I wasn't working the whole time on it. I, there was a, a long period where I didn't do anything. So let's get into the history itself. Can you give us some background information on the King family? Who were they and what kind of business was the father in? Sure. I think um, probably might be a bit more interesting or a bit more helpful to start with where France was at at the time because the case is actually so linked to the political aspects that were going on in, in at that period. Um, from the period of about 1852 to 1870, France was had fairly great uh, economic pros- prosperity. Napoleon III had come to power as emperor and had established what was called the Second Empire. So he had completely refurbished Paris during this period. What we think of as modern Paris was created in that period through Baron Haussmann's um, establishment of the boulevards. They demolished a lot of the really old areas of Paris. They built the sewer system. Uh, they eliminated all the small streets, which there's talk that Napoleon III had wanted this done because uh, the smaller streets had to help the revolutionaries in times like uh, are described in Les Miserables. So a lot of this had been achieved with imported credit. He had um, reformed the banking system. He was a dictator, but I think you would say he was a, a fairly benevolent dictator. He'd reformed the banking system. He'd done a lot that had uh, really brought a lot of wealth and prosperity to a lot of people across France. But by the beginning of the 1860s, moving into the middle of the 1860s, things had started to unravel a little bit. People were wanting more freedom, a, a greater democracy. Napoleon III had started to work on this, but it was kind of fairly slow and a lot of negative forces were gathering around him. His age, his health was beginning to fail. His popularity was declining. Um, The credit that he'd used to do all of these public works was starting to dry up. He'd been involved in a few uh, war skirmishes on the borders, particularly with Prussia. And Bismarck really was lurking on the sidelines, getting towards the mid-60s, mid-1860s. Yeah, so it was a time of great material gains. People had fairly um, privileged lives, but by the mid to late 60s, it was starting to kind of fall apart. Uh, So the background to the major characters of the story We'd have to first cross over to the eastern side of, of France to a very small strip of land in within Alsace, which was on the border pretty much with, with Prussia at that time. The borders had kind of changed a few times, so a lot of the cities in the area, for example, had uh, German-sounding names like Mulhaus and even Jean Kink, his surname, Kink, is, you know, more German than French. Uh, so Jean was born in 1826 in Alsace. At, uh, as he kind of got older, his parents, both his parents had died while he was quite young. So the area was fairly economically depressed. And by the time he, I think he was about 16 or 17, he moved to the other side of France, uh, up in the north, in an area called the North Nord Part de Calais, um, near the Belgian border, uh, he so he he was quite young when he went there. But over the next few years, and particularly with the prosperity that the Second Empire brought in, he established uh, a small manufacturing business. The main business of that area was the production of fabric, but he chose to. Uh, establish a kind of secondary business where he manufactured um, replacement parts for the machines, for the mills that uh, that made the, the fabric. It's interesting to note that by the mid-1860s, 
the area did have a bit of an economic stress because the American Civil War had caused the supply of cotton to dry up. But he did survive this. He, he was quite a shrewd operator. So he had, by you know, the late 1860s, he'd established um, a fairly good fortune, really. Uh, in 1852, just going back a bit, he married a woman from the area, uh, Hortense Roussel. The marriage pretty much lasted the length of the Second Empire. She was an uneducated woman. She was illiterate, which is has great bearings on, on what happened. But she, she made Jean swear that they would never leave the area. She was quite a provincial woman. Um, she didn't want to leave her parents or her family. So they quickly had a first son, Gustave. Um, then there was a bit of a hiatus. But then in fairly rapid succession, they had six more children between 1856 and 1867. So going down in order, there was Emile, Henri, Achille, Alfred, Hector, and then finally a girl, Marie. Um, the boy Hector had died when he was quite young. He was the only one of the children who um, died in infancy. Uh, so for the first decade or more of their marriage, they were the very model of a modern French Second Empire family. They were fertile, productive, obedient, and a financial success. Jean had um, amassed property and business quite a sizable amount, so it kind of propelled them into the upper middle of middle class, really, and he was continuing to ex expand. Um, now we need to kind of just go back over to Alsace, and uh, Jean-Baptiste Trotman was born there in 1848, um, not very far, actually, from where King's parents uh, had been situated. Trotman's parents were also involved in manufacturing, so even from the beginning, the links to, to the King's started to emerge. His father was an inventor, but he'd been ripped off by a business part, partner quite early in um, Jean-Baptiste's life, and he took uh, this person to court and fought them quite hard and was uh, burnt up a lot of money and in the end had to declare himself uh, bankrupt. So this uh, incident bred a certain kind of resentment within the family. Trotman, the, the boy, Jean-Baptiste, Jean was bright, but he was uneducated. And I think this was blighted by his father's lack of money, his education. Uh, his father's financial position recovered somewhat and he invented um, a, a funnel made of papier-mâché that was used in the machines to dye fabric, so it was a disposable kind of object. Trotman and his was the youngest and favourite of his mother. He uh, wasn't able to establish. I wasn't able to establish how many siblings he had, but he definitely had an older brother and an older sister. He'd been bullied at school. He was incredibly small, but um, kind of almost a runt. But he had great strength. He had incredibly large hands, um, which you need to just remember that fact because it recurs later in the story. Uh, he also had a bit of a quick temper. At about 15, he went to work in his father's factory and was kind of an outcast from the other workers. He was the boss's son, although his elder brother worked there and had been accepted. There was a story I found that in an argument with his brother, he smashed his brother with a hammer in the head. But he also showed great strength and agility by pulling a colleague's um, arm from a machine and saving his arm, even though in doing this, he burnt his own hands. But he was in many ways the product of the Second Empire as well. He believed that he could have everything, the material plenty that the Empire was offering, but with the overlay that his father had already lost everything, there was a strong sense of entitlement and resentment in him. Trotman is, is certainly an incredibly interesting character. How, how did his relationship develop with Jean Kink? Uh, he's, uh, so his father had invented this um, funnel, like it was a disposable funnel. So Trotman was, his father sent him to 
Paris, firstly, to install the funnel in some machines there. So he saw, he spent quite a bit of time in Paris in the area around Saint-Denis, which is out near um, an area that's kind of semi, at that stage, was uh, semi-rural kind of industrial, new, newly industrialised area called Paton. And while he was there, he would have met a lot of other Alsatian and Prussian workers who'd been bought into the area to, re or were living in that area and were employed in the redevelopment of Paris, so the building of the boulevards and the sewage system and all the other things that public works at Napoleon III had started at that time. So once this job was finished, initially he was meant to return to Alsace, but then his father sent him to the, the area around Rubai, which is where Kink's business was. So they, at this time, Kink had become to be unsettled. He had started to feel that he was a bit of a foreigner in this area. And I think this probably wasn't unfounded you know, he would have had quite a, quite a strong German accent that would have marked him as not being from this area. And Prussia was making fairly bold murmurings about war at this time, and he was definitely identified with this area. But moreover, he really was a success, and this had probably fostered some ill feeling in the locals. He was also now middle-aged, so I guess, uh, you know, he was probably experiencing some kind of nostalgia and um, some kind of middle-age crisis. So he did want to return to Alsace, which I think horrified his wife because this had been a condition when they got married, that they would never leave the area. So, but soon after John, Jean had started making these announcements, Hortense uh, became pregnant again, which did seem to change uh, Jean's focus and life settled down. But then uh, he met Trotman, who'd come to the area to work for another factory. It wasn't a large area, it wasn't a large city. So they had met up. Despite the fact that Trotman was, you know, pretty much half Kink's age, to a degree Trotman was, I think Kink saw Trotman as his younger self. They were both from Alsace. They both moved to the area at about the same time of life. They were involved in similar, similar industries. So despite the fact that um, his eldest son, Gustav, was now 16, he kind of took Trotman, who was 19 at this at this time, uh, under his wing. He introduced him to the family and showed him, you know, all the trappings, of all the material trappings of his success, really. Talk about their trip to Herrenfluch together. They, they start to devise a plan to perhaps make some money together. Is that correct? You see, this is where gets a little bit unclear about what exactly happened but it's so in some ways the case is a bit kind of like Jack the Ripper in that there's this established fact and then there's a lot of circumspection about things but so after Trotman had finished installing the work in in this area he returned to Alsace so I think this would have been been kind of late July 1869 but about a month after he'd left, uh, Kink announced that he was following Trotman to Alsace to view some business prospects in the area in order to facilitate the movement of the family back to Alsace permanently. This was completely against his wife's wishes, but he left in August 1869 and went to Alsace. Uh, a lot of what was happening, uh, of what actually happened in, South, in Alsace is unknown. Uh, it's interesting that there were very few reports or sightings of the pair in Alsace after Kink's arrival. Where they were is essentially a small hamlet. So if they were moving around a lot, you would have thought they would have been seen and, and noted, particularly given they were both from the area. And things, but there's very few reports of them actually moving around. I think the kind of 
more factual part of the story is what happened back on the other side of France with Hortense. Um, because she couldn't read, she I think as a consequence of that, she couldn't recognise her husband's handwriting either. But after some weeks, she received a letter from her husband asking her to send 5,500 francs to Alsace in cash through the mail. So I think from what I can establish, this would be about $70,000 US today. So it was a fairly substantial amount of money. Jean had said that he wanted this money to secure a business prospect that they had found. He was very unclear about what it actually was. And after a lot of toing and froing, she did send the money. But soon after this, she received another letter from Kink and Trotman that they, Kink and Trotman, had been called to Paris on urgent business. And that Gustav, the eldest son, had to now travel to Alsace to recover the money which was sitting in a post-restaurant office. So in early September, Gustav set off on this mission, but once in Alsace, he had to wait for um, an authority, a notarized authority to be sent by his mother to give him authority to recover the money from the post-restaurant. But unfortunately, instead of sending this authority to a relative of her husband's address, she sent it to the same post restaurant address. So Gustav never actually received the authority for the money. So it was never recovered. On his own initiative, he traveled to Paris to see his father to get further instructions. So Hortense then received a telegram telling in late or mid, mid September, 1869, telling her to travel to Paris to meet with Jean and Gustave and that everything would be explained. And she was to bring five, 500 francs, so about $6,000 US, uh, all the children and all the title deeds to all the houses and property that uh, Kink owned. So on um, the 19th of September, 1869, it was a Sunday, she travelled to Paris. Uh, like this was a huge undertaking for an illiterate woman who was six months pregnant, shepherding five children from the ages of 13 to two, nearly three, was the youngest, the youngest girl. Um, when she arrived in Paris, uh, Jean and Gustave were not there to meet her as had been arranged. Only Trotman was there. It was quite late at night. It was about 10 o'clock at night when she arrived. Um, and he, Trotman said that he would take them to, um, to meet Jean. So they caught a cab to the outskirts of Paris, um, to the area where Trotman had worked earlier that year and was very familiar with. He ordered the coach to stop near a field and asked Hortense to accompany him across the field to meet Jean. But the two younger children, Alpha and Marie, began to cry and Trotman eventually agreed to let them come too. The elder boys, Emile, Henri and Achille, stayed with the cab driver. About 20 minutes later, Trotman returned to the cab. So it was only a, you know, a pretty short time. It wasn't like he was gone for an hour or something. The cab driver reported that Trotman was on his own. He was dressed the same. He wasn't dishevelled in any way. He paid the cab driver and walked off into the field with the other three boys. In the morning after, so this would have been the uh, 20th of September, a farmer who worked this plot of land, so it was kind of like would have been a small market garden. So overnight he saw that a piece of earth had been dug and that there was a trail of blood, a blood-stained handkerchief on the ground. He went to it and after a little scruffing around in the soil, he saw a small child's hand. So he sounded the alarm. And this is where your novel opens, the bodies being discovered and then recovered from their burial site. What, what did the crime scene look like when the police finally arrived? What, what did they discover exactly? Well, by the time um, the investigation was led by... Monsieur Claude, who was the Paris chief of police, so quite an, a high-ranking official was put on the case pretty quickly. 
But by the time he got to the field, um, chaos had pretty much erupted because hundreds and hundreds of people had descended on the field to look at the bodies being uncovered. Like, the, you know, there were reports of somehow the news got back into central Paris. People just fled or ran to the scene. I think, yeah, an interesting side here is there was this kind of incredibly gory kind of element to Paris or voyeuristic element to Paris. The actual morgue in one of the morgues, the main morgue in Paris, which was on um, the island in the river behind, it was built uh, behind Notre Dame, it's not there anymore, was actually open to the public. So people were actually allowed to go and view bodies that were on display behind glass cabinets, uh, unidentified bodies, so that they could be identified, like there were bodies who'd been pulled from the Seine, drowned, murdered bodies. And it was quite regular for women, men to go and just view these bodies. It was actually in an, an American tourist guide of the time that you could go and view bodies in the morgue. So there was this kind of incredibly kind of odd element, which I think spilled over into people running to this field to to see these bodies that were still lying in um, the shallow grave. But during um, Claude's examination of the site, he realised that Hortense was um, actually still warm. They tried to revive her, but she actually died at the site. But it does mean, particularly from the position of the some of the children's bodies, that uh, it looked like they had been buried alive as well as they'd fought to get out. Uh, the injuries of all of them were fairly extensive. There was over, between them all, there was over 100 stab wounds. There were also puncture wounds and kind of evidence of strangulation as well. So once this had been uncovered, you know, Paris just literally erupted, how, you know, with horror. How, how could this have happened? Napoleon III had promised us, you know, promised them all that they were safe and yet this horrendous crime had happened uh, pretty much on the outskirts of Paris. What was the evidence found at the scene? And what was Monsieur Claude able to deduce during his initial examination of the crime scene? Well, a lot had been lost because, you know, so many people had traipsed over everything. But quite quickly, they were aware that Hortense was um, pregnant and had actually gone into labour while she'd been buried, which just increases the, um, the horror of the whole thing. Um, within a few days, though, they had pretty much identified the bodies and then realised that Jean and Gustave were missing. So they became the chief suspects. The press really had a field day with this because it finally gave them a story to illustrate the decay of the Second Empire, but also that Napoleon III had exercised in the early part of the empire, had exercised pretty tight control of the press. So this gave them something to really kind of fight back against him with. The case is often cited as the birth of uh, tabloid journalism because all a lot of the reports in the newspapers were constructed to instill fear in the readers you know, this could happen to your family in this out-of-control state that they're kind of living in. Monsieur Claude was a pretty capable investigator, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, he was, uh, I think at this stage, he was in his mid-60s. He, as I said, he was the chief of police. He had a long history of um, able investigations, really. So he was the right person to um, lead the investigation. So how was Trotman linked to the murders of Hortense and her children? And how did the police arrest him? Well, I think um, there was a large dollop of very good luck involved in, in all of this. Two days later in Le Havre, which is a port city on the western side of, of France, so not that far from Paris, but out to, to on the coast, at that stage, it was a port city. People were leaving France through, through and arriving in France through this city. 
So a, a young police officer questioned a young man just for his identity papers. It was pretty much a standard request. It wasn't anything particularly out of the ordinary. But the young man panicked and jumped uh, into one of the canals to try to drown himself. He was rescued by someone working on a boat nearby. But when he was pulled out of the canal, all the documents of Jean Kink's life were concealed in his jacket. So initially it was thought he was Gustav. He refused to speak. The young man refused to speak or say anything. But when he was brought back to Paris, he was confronted with the bodies at the morgue. He was confronted with the bodies of the mother and the children. And he signed a document as Jean-Baptiste Trotman. So he pretty much identified himself. The murders happened on Sunday night and, and were discovered on Monday morning. And he was pretty much arrested by Thursday. What did Trotman confess in his first interrogation? Yeah, um, initially he maintained that Gustave and Jean had um, killed the family, that uh, they had then escaped to America and he was in Le Havre to follow at that stage. But he maintained that Jean suspected that his wife had had a long affair and that the only child that was his was Gustave and Gustave had acted because he was horrified with his mother. So initially, he, his first confession was, you know, pretty much the easy one, that he blamed it on the missing um, family members. Then police discover the body of the eldest boy, Gustav Kink. How was he killed? By this stage, the field where the bodies had been discovered had become a carnival. There were literally, you know, people having picnics out on the field, there were pony rides for children to entertain children so the parents could go off and look at where the gravesite was. So the field had been completely trampled by this stage, but somehow, and it does seem fairly extraordinary, uh, the body of Gustav was buried, in a, again, in a shallow grave, away from where the mother had, and the mother and the other children had been buried, but not a substantial difference, quite close. Um, so his body was recovered and it was estimated that he had been murdered before the mother, just from the decay of the body. He had a, a knife kind of pretty much embedded in his throat that had gone, I think it was embedded in his spine as well. So he had died, it was pretty much established, he had died before the mother and the other children. And soon they have a funeral for the King family and it's a, it's a pretty massive affair, isn't it? A lot of Paris turns out for it. Yeah, a bidding war got underway for which city was going to bury the bodies because, you know, this case had reached so much notoriety that the cities involved all recognised that um, whoever buried them would have a great tourist attraction, really. So even the cities in um, Alsace were bidding for it and... Hortense's parents wanted, you know, wanted the bodies brought back to be near them up in the north of Paris, which was eventually where they were buried, yeah. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. 
Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So finally, Troutman makes a full confession, doesn't he? What does, what does he admit to? Well, uh, prior to that, he did tailor his confessions to the incoming information. So once um, Gustav's body had been found, he maintained that something must have changed and that Jean had killed Gustav. You know, they had had an argument or something, even though Claude was telling them that the body had been killed prior to that. Um, I think after this, more kind of information started to come in. The letters that Kink had written from Alsace to Hortense were were analysed and were identified to be forgeries, that they weren't his hand. I, I don't think Claude was ever convinced that one person could have killed all the family members, kind of in particularly the first three, in the allotted time. Trotman would have had to have stabbed and bludgeoned and strangled three people and not ruffled his clothes, not got, you know, there was no blood staining or no visible blood staining when he went back to the, um, the cab. So all of that would have had to have happened in 20 minutes, which is impossible, really. Yeah, so, uh, and also after, um, after the murders, there were reports that Trotman had been seen in the days after the murder in Paris with some other men who were not um, Jean and Gustave. Claude continually confronted Trotman with the, the evidence that there just had to be other people involved, but he, he denied any involvement of others and just continually said that it was done by Jean and Gustave. But then um, the, Claude then really um, started to initiate searches to try and find Kink he did searches internationally, but they were pretty fruitless to see if he had travelled to America, as Trotman um, maintained, but he would have travelled under false identity documents, so it was pretty hard to establish that. But eventually, um, King's body was found in Alsace, up in the hills above a small town called Chennai. We actually were lucky. I, I went there uh to, and we found the spot where the body had been found it was up in these um hills in the ruins of this old castle it's now pretty destroyed there's not much of it kind of left um but kink had been poisoned and with crudely made um cyanide and left just uh he was just sitting by a tree so when claude confronted trotman with this um, he confessed that he and Jean had actually met up with some other men in Alsace who wanted to counterfeit money. So it was kind of um, an easy road to making more money. Uh, he, this is why they had asked um, Hortense to send the 5,500 francs because they needed to buy some machinery and to set it up. Um, but everything hadn't really gone to plan. Jean, he, Trotman claimed that Jean had overheard some of these other men that they were involved with who were Prussians talking about um, a state secret that Jean had decided to go to Paris and tell the authorities about when these other Prussian men 
got um, whiff of this, they demanded that Kink was killed. I mean, this is the story that um, that Trotman confessed to. Uh, he wouldn't confess the name of his accomplices because he said that they had made um, threats against his family, so he wouldn't confess up these names. So um, as the case had um, caused such public outcry and unrest and was fanned you know, pretty much daily by the newspapers, Claude was under kind of a huge pressure to get it resolved and get a guilty party and to bury the whole thing. Get, and get it out of the papers. So, um, you know, for three months, pretty much from September through to, well, nearly four months, you know, there was just this escalating hype around it. So he was under a lot of pressure to get it, get it solved. Do you think that there is any validity to Trotman's suggestion that he and John Kink were going to start a counterfeiting business together? Well, it's hard to there's no hard proof of this there's no kind of evidence of this really except that he very adroitly put this story together in isolation if he did it uh one of the things that makes me think that is that he had he was he had inherited his father's ability to be an inventor and i think that went across the board to include inventing stories, but he had um, synthesized the um, cyanide, which was to kill, which was used to kill um, kink. But the interesting thing in that is that this chemical was also used in counterfeiting to help coat coins, lower value coins with a golden kind of substance to actually make them have appear to have more value. So his synthesizing this chemical had two jobs. It could have been involved in counterfeiting, but it was also, it was definitely involved in King's death. So yeah, from a a historical point of view, I don't think there's much um, evidence to really back this up. But from a novelistic point of view, it was a great drama. It was a great thing to situate a drama around. So what was the the trial like for Trotman? What were some of the more interesting aspects of the trial? Well, again, the the hype and the um, public outrage continued on into the trial, which was held in late December after Christmas, about, I think it was the 28th, 29th, 30th of December, so just after Christmas. The tickets to the public gallery were completely booked out. There were people scalping them for huge amounts of money outside before the trial started. So over the the three days of the trial, the evidence was presented to um, convict Trotman completely. He was represented or constructed as a liar, that he'd changed his confession three times, that he had sought to pretty much just gain access to King's fortune by killing the family. But the prosecution also argued in you know pretty strong terms that because Trotman's hands were so large and strong that he that this had enabled him to be able to strangle two children at the one time and hence he'd been able to do the murders in the time that had been allocated to it. Even though um Last-minute evidence was brought forward that Trotman had been seen with other men after the in the morning after the the, the murders. He still wouldn't confess their names, and he was um, after three days, pretty after very little um, deliberation, really, he was sentenced to death by guillotine for the murders of eight people. It's so horrifying imagining the murder of that poor family if he'd committed them by himself, to to think that those children would have watched him kill their siblings one by one, it would have to have been terrifying for them. I I think that's precisely it, that um, he couldn't have done it alone. I just don't see how you could control, you know, three people. So he did it in two lots of three people. How you could control 
two other people while you're murdering one person. I mean, okay, it may only take, you know, I don't know, five, ten seconds to incapacitate someone so they can't move anymore. But in that ten seconds, one of the other people or two of the other people could move out of range and while the other person's being dispatched, the other person's got another 10 seconds. So in 20 seconds, you could move quite quickly. And it was dark. You know, it was dark. It wasn't like this was happening in in daylight where he could see where other people were. So, I mean, this is one of the major things that I think really does point towards the fact that he had to have had accomplices to do it. Talk about the days leading up to the execution, if you don't mind. What were his final days like? He's maintained through it all that uh, he had accomplices, but he wouldn't name them. So I think to a large degree he had pretty much accepted his fate, uh, that he just there was no escape for him. Uh, there were appeals for clemency to Napoleon III, uh, but they were, they were knocked back. Um, his execution happened on the 19th of uh, January, 1870, it was completely a public execution in um, a square outside the prison. Someone in the square fell from a tree. They'd been trying to get a bit of view of what was going on and died. Trotman maintained to the end that he had accomplices, but that he wouldn't name them. Uh, so he had died, but um, not without one or two more noteworthy things happening. During the execution, in the hours leading up to the execution, a troop of writers, including the Russian Turgenev, were allowed to follow the last hour of Trotman's life uh, from the time that he was woken at 6am to the execution at 7. Turgenev wrote the most bizarre account of these hours leading up to the death. It really was finding, when I found that piece of writing, it was one of the things that really did uh, kind of spur me on with the project. Also, a famous um, shuromancer, De Barol, was allowed to make a cast of Trotman's hand. At that stage, the science of phrenology and shuromancy were keen to link facial and hand features to a, a, a crime. This was one of my original interests in the case. At the time, in 2000, the Clinton administration had overseen the mapping of um, the human genome and all kinds of claims were suddenly being made about the tight link between genetic influence and all manner of human behaviour. The link between the genetic expression in the shape of a hand and psychopathy in 1870s France suddenly didn't seem so outrageous to me. Basically, a hand is an expression of a genetic identity and Deborah was trying to link this to characteristics of a personality I had also I'd also seen a collection of face death masks at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and I'd seen Trotman's hand, um, the cast of Trotman's hand at the Police Museum in Paris. The hands, um, it is unusual. The, it, the thumb's incredibly long. Um, I think it's made more unusual by the fact it's kind of thrust off this bust, which just makes it look malevolent, like this thing is clawing out of the, um, the base that it's attached to. Wasn't there some story about Trotman biting off someone's finger or thumb just, just before he was killed? Yeah, in the final seconds of his life, he um, somehow managed to, he'd been put strapped to the plank of the guillotine and lowered into position the collar had been put around his his neck to keep him in place, and he somehow managed to um, skew his head sideways and bit the hand of one of the assistants who uh, was involved in the execution, causing that to bleed, and um, it just added to the hysteria and the hype that was kind of happening around the execution. So the scene you said at the beginning of the interview about the state of affairs in France under Napoleon, you said he was losing popularity and potentially on the verge of losing power. And this is on the eve of the Franco-German War. Did these murders have any influence on the war itself, which, which would come less than a year after the murders were committed, right? Yeah, it was literally pretty much a year after the bodies of the mother and the children were found on the field. 
the Prussians had invaded Paris. They it was almost to the day, I think. Well, this is um, you know this is the area for ripe kind of speculation that in Claude's notes on the case in his memoir, he speculates that there was this report that uh, Kink had overheard something from these Prussians and had, was going to go to Paris and tell authorities of this. The, the speculation around that was enough for Claude to kind of think that possibly um, there had been some involvement of, the, of Prussians in Alsace who were wanting to bring about some kind of event within Paris or within France that would, would force um, Napoleon III to attack Prussia so that Prussia would not be seen as the aggressor, that it would be France that was the aggressor. What this event was exactly is not really um, written down or, or known, but again was um, an area of kind of fairly ripe speculation for me as a novelist to kind of imagine what this event that Kink had heard about was, was actually was. You know, there is another area of thought. It's, this, again, you know, keys back into my comparison to um, it being similar to Jack the Ripper in that there was another area of consideration that the left of France had actually um, brought this about to basically destabilise the government so that they had somehow engineered this murder to happen to just destabilise the government. Again, there's no evidence of these things. They're just kind of speculation, really. How can people learn more about your work and buy your book? Uh, well, you can go to my website, which I try to update, but being being a busy author, it's often not uh, it's hard to do that, um, which is GS, www.gsjohnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N, Com, or just uh, go to Amazon, which has got links to my author page and to the novels there as well. So I think The Cast of a Hand is only available through Amazon at the moment. So there's the printed edition or the Kindle edition. Thank you again for your time. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was um, lovely to talk about it all again. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.